illusions, analogies, parallels to Christ throughout the Old Testament. And we're just going to look at a couple, one of which um, may may have been apparent to you all for some time, but it really struck me as I read through it a few weeks ago and has has given me a mental image that uh, I, I hope to share with you this morning, maybe help us appreciate the, the power um, of what Christ was willing to do for us, the sober nature, the beautiful thing that, that Christ did. Before we read from Numbers 16, if you remember back in, in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, God had promised the Israelites that he would make them his treasured possession. He would make them, he said, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the people of Israel had rebelled. God had brought them out of Egypt, out of Egyptian slavery. He had taken them to Canaan, a land of plenty. He had allowed 12 men to go in for 40 days and spy out this land. And they came back saying, at least in part, the same thing. It's a land of bountiful blessing. It has everything that we need and more. But 10 of those 12 men had forgotten God in their analysis of that land and said, we are incapable of taking this place. And they were right. They had seen the awe-inspiring plagues of Egypt that got them out of that land to begin with and had forgotten that God could continue to demonstrate that same power to bring them into a new land. They had held in their hands God's gift God's provisions, food that was so bountiful it took two men to carry it between their shoulders, and they had essentially looked in God's face and said, we don't trust you, we don't believe you, we don't think you're strong enough. So God had punished that generation, and he had told them, for every day that these men spent in that land, I will make you wander for a year. 40 years for 40 days until that generation dies and your children that you were so concerned about, they're the ones who are going to get this land and and you will die in the wilderness. So it's on, it's on the coattails of this that number 16 happens. Let's read the first 11 verses. It says that Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all the congregation... All in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. 
Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near to him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you and you would seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? They said, look, we're all holy. We're all special. And they were. God had promised that the whole nation would be a holy people, a chosen possession. But they didn't like the order of authority that God had put in place. Moses being the leader and Aaron especially being the high priest, his sons being the priest. And they took it upon Moses and said, you've done this, you've gone too far, and you're showing preferential treatment and it's not fair. So they did as as Moses instructed. Some of them refused to even come up to Moses. But when they presented themselves with the 250 censors, God appears And at first says, Moses and Aaron, stand back. I'm going to consume the entire congregation. And Moses and Aaron intercede, as they had done many times, and said, should should the whole congregation uh, perish because of these men's sin? So then God says in verse 24, Say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. And we know this story. He basically says, look, if these men die of natural causes then you shouldn't consider that any big thing. But if they die in this very unusual way, if the earth opens up and swallows them alive, then you'll know that God is the one making the decisions here. God is the one who decides who has the special privileges of the priests and the high priests. Well, the earth does open and swallow them alive. And the 250 men that had also taken rebellious positions with Korah were burned with fire from the Lord. And you'd think that the people would take a step back and say, God God has this handled. And the men that he has set up with these special positions of authority, of service, really, the high priest didn't get to live in some castle and enjoy riches above his brothers. He served And they should have been okay with that position, but they weren't. The next day, so starting in verse 39, God had actually said, so the censers that all of those men were holding when they were burned alive, those censers have now actually become holy. Those are instruments of worship. Take those, take the bronze, put it on the altar and use that as a reminder 
of the position of the priesthood and what God has done. It says in verse 39 that Eleazar did that. But on the next day, it says in verse 41, the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord, which I find fascinating. Moses had opened the earth and swallowed. Moses had sent fire. Time and time again, not only were they second-guessing God's decisions, but they were disregarding him completely, leaving him out of the events that they had just seen. And in his righteous wrath, God sends a plague. It says in verse 42, When the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. I I don't know what it was about reading it this time. But that that to me, that that is a scene of an epic movie. And I I mean that in in no disrespect. Think of the seriousness of what is happening. Their rebellion has caused the plague that has already started spreading amongst the congregation. What, What can you do? And Moses commissions one man, Aaron, and we'll talk about why Aaron, and says, do this quickly. Because if you don't hurry, they'll all die. Is the implication here. The plague has already begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. And I tried to find an image online to depict this. No one's really, no one's really given it a thought, but can you picture it? Moses, with his incense, running amongst the people, standing between those who are already dead or dying, and the rest. Standing between God's righteous judgment. It was right for him to punish them in this way. Standing between that and the people who will be consumed if he does nothing. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah, which I find the affair of Korah is like a euphemism of the 251 people killed in a day. Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. It is a, it is a haunting and sobering and I hope powerful image. Imagine Aaron, the high priest of the Lord, interceding, making atonement for these people 
one man running in among people that despised him. This whole situation arose because they didn't want him to have the position that he had. They thought it was unfair. These people didn't like him. And yet he's the one needed to save their lives. And as the high priest, only Aaron had the right to even approach God in this way. And that's why Moses chose him. It had already been laid out in the law of Moses what was necessary for Aaron and for his sons. But it was only Aaron who could make atonement for the people in a very specific way. And that was a serious and sober responsibility. And now it was a desperate and immediate need that these people had. God is holy. And we are approaching him this morning. He has promised to be among assemblies like this. And he expects us to treat him with respect. And not just the respect that we would show uh, our human leaders or our, our bosses or our parents, but with a level of respect that is due no one else. And we should take that seriously and soberly. The people had disregarded that and had, had, had borne the wrath of God. You can see the analogies here, and we'll talk about these in just a moment after John leads a couple more songs. Our high priest has done something for us when we were in a period of great need. And I want us to, to take a, a, a little bit more time after these two songs to discuss why Aaron was the man for this job and what we can consider and think about Jesus as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. So, John. The next song we're going to sing is only going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, As you see, it's entitled, Before the Throne of God Above. If I could imagine myself being one of the Israelites with the plague coming through and asking, what can I do? What can be done to stop the plague? I feel kind of helpless. Imagine. Imagine what it would be like to stand before the throne of God. Given our sinful condition, if it were not for our great high priest... And verse 2 of this song is going to read like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See the analogy between what what Aaron did and what Jesus has done for us will be the focus of these next two songs. Before the throne of God above.
For some more comments from Craig, we'll sing a song, Almighty God Beyond the Veil. If this is in the red folder, number 103. This is a, this is a song with three verses, and each verse presents a, a different era 
verse 1 talks about the, the ancient time when the priest would come once a year before God in the temple to, to offer the, uh, the, the, the sacrifice of atonement. Verse 2 talks about Jesus coming to earth and being crucified on the cross, the Lamb of God, to, to fulfill God's purpose and tear the veil. And verse 3 paints the picture of us today benefiting from the sacrifice that Jesus made and allowing us to enter with God beyond the veil. Uh, if you're following along in the in the uh, folder, we'll sing the coda only after verse three. No, so me in ancient times the chosen race prepared Jehovah's dwelling place. The of him who dwelt between the cherubim, the cherubim, but once a year their priest would hail, almighty God beyond the veil, behold your king, that shameful cry was back as crucified. The blood was shed that could atone the Lamb that was Jehovah's own, Jehovah's own. That darkest hour is last exhale. Fulfilled God's plan and tore the May enter his most holy place by faith. Our prayers ascend to him who reigns among the seraphim. The seraphim, we boldly bow and thus prevail. kind of coordinate together, but I simply asked John to pick some songs, and uh, I really appreciate, really appreciate his choices. There was a lot going on in the decision to ask Aaron, tell Aaron, to go and do this for the people. It wasn't 
that Moses was afraid to do it himself. It wasn't that Aaron had nothing better to do. But God had appointed that man, Aaron, as Israel's first high priest. And there was a certain level of of responsibility. The importance of of God's establishment of a priesthood in the law of Moses and, and throughout Scripture cannot be overstated. Before the giving of the law itself, and we referenced this earlier, in Exodus 19, God made a covenant. He made a promise with the whole congregation that they would be a kingdom of priests. They would be the people that would be allowed a special communion with the God of the universe. It was after the tribe of Levi took a stand against their own brothers at Mount Sinai. When Moses was receiving the law and the people were down at the foot of the mountain committing sin and rebellion against God, Moses came down and said, whoever is with the Lord, come to me, rally to me. And the Levites did and were willing to put to death their own kinsmen because they had abused and rebelled against God. And God set them apart. That they would be the ones, the tribe of Levi, to handle the tabernacle, to to serve in in that place, and that Aaron's family would be a family of priests. Aaron himself being the first high priest. The high priest, his role was essential for the people to maintain a covenant relationship with God. Without him and the work that he did, the people would would be lost in their sins. And we could spend several lessons about the importance of the Passover, of the importance of the Day of Atonement, the importance of the daily sacrifices. But it was during the Day of Atonement that the high priest, only one man could hold this office at any given time, that the high priest would enter the holy place And as the song just said, this veil, this curtain that separated the Ark of the Covenant, the the item that God had chosen to represent his mercy seat, his very presence, that couldn't just be put among the camp. It had to be kept in a special place and not just anybody could come and see it and be before God, only the high priest and only on this day and only with blood and he would enter that place after first offering a sacrifice for himself because the high priest was was just as sinful as the rest of them and needed the cleansing blood that God had given them and then he would offer a sacrifice for the people it was the high priest who would intercede for the people on behalf of God. This was his job. So for Moses to commission Aaron to do this, this was his job. And God had very specific rules for the priests, and especially the high priest. Very specific laws about his behavior, about his dress, And about the ritual practices that he had to observe. And God was so strict 
with the observance of these things, that when Aaron's own sons offered profane fire before the Lord, they burned incense in, in such a way that was not according to the rule. Maybe they used different ingredients. Maybe they did it at a time they shouldn't have. Maybe they simply did it in a flippant kind of way. God killed them on the spot. This was a serious position to be in. In fact, do you notice, uh, for those of us who've, who've gone through Exodus and, and now Numbers, the position that, that Moses and Aaron take whenever the people rebel, they start complaining. Have you, have you all noticed this? Maybe those who are doing the daily Bible reading. The people complain, and Moses and Aaron, usually the very first thing they do is drop to the ground. Because disrespect has been shown to God, and, and they don't want to get in the way of the wrath. The righteous wrath that is due for such disrespect. And Aaron wouldn't enter the, the, the most holy place with just kind of lighting the incense as he goes in and flipping the curtain open and, hey, here we are. This was a matter of life or death. For him and for the people who were counting on him to offer this atoning sacrifice for them. We often think about the incredible danger that Esther put herself in when she approached the king unannounced. If she were to come unannounced and he were not to extend that scepter, she understood she would likely be put to death. How much more the high priest bore the responsibility and the weight if he were to approach God unannounced or in an inappropriate fashion... Holy Jehovah God, the infinite being, you could not do such a thing and live. And yet Korah and his people were whining and saying, we want that. No, you, no, you don't. No, you don't. It is a, it was a blessing that Aaron was willing to take that responsibility on himself. We talked about the tabernacle and we've talked about sacrifices and the high priest and there are countless parallels we can make to Jesus. And I know we've done some of those here recently. We talked about Phineas this morning in Bible class and what Phineas was willing to do to stop a plague that had come about through the people's rebellion. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. But have you, have you ever had this experience, surely I'm not the only one, where you're trying to find that parallel to explain a point? Karen can attest to this. And you're trying to find that illustration. And you're like, you start it by saying, it's not a perfect parallel, but, which usually means, after about five seconds, someone's going to be able to poke a hole in it, and the thing's going to fall apart. And I still try, I still try it. This parallel just keeps getting d deeper and richer and more incredible the more you dig into it. So let's look at a few passages in, in one of my favorite books, in, in the book of Hebrews, that helps us connect some of these pieces, just a few of them, as we consider our Lord and his sacrifice. So let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 7.
honestly, if time were to permit, I just read this whole book. It is, it is, it is one of my favorites. Because it takes the first two thirds of the Bible, and let's be honest, those of us who are doing our daily Bible reading, there are sections where I, I don't quite know what to make of it. And Hebrews helps us go, did you know? Did you realize what the tabernacle really was? Did you realize what the, what the Passover, what the festival of booths really, did, did you realize that? Maybe I'm just a slow learner, but Hebrews is what I need to put that together. And it does it with the priesthood and with our high priest so beautifully. In Hebrews 11, starting in, I'm sorry, Hebrews 7, starting in verse 11, he's mid-thought here, but let's start here. He says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. Now, he's already introduced this idea, this this psalm, this prophecy, that one would come not through the, the tribe of Levi and through the family of Aaron, but a priest would come through this man, Melchizedek, this kingly priest that were introduced during the time of Abraham in the book of Genesis that we know very little about. You kind of read that story and go, that's, that's interesting, I don't know what that was all about. But a promise was made that one would come after his order. In verse 12 it says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, Jesus, was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Here's an aside. Silence is never authoritative. In the old law, God didn't have to say, I want priests from Levi, but not from Judah, not from Benjamin, not from... He simply said, this is what I want, and that excludes all others. That's the point the Hebrew writer is making here. He didn't say anything about priests in Judah. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not his his family tree, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, this is a quotation from the book of Psalms. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let's keep reading. And it's not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. And it's true. If you were of the line of Aaron, you were eligible to be a priest. And it it didn't seem like there was any kind of ceremony or or promise or oath-taking. It was just, yeah. This is your dad, so that means. But he said the oath given for this better covenant, this priest after Melchizedek, was one when the Lord has sworn in verse 21 and will not change his mind. He's made a promise, an oath. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. 
They would die and someone would have to take their place. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In chapter 9, a few verses here, starting in verse 11, not only is, is he our priest after a more perfect order, he will never need a replacement because he will never die, but it, it connects that Jesus is in fact our high priest, starting in verse 11 of chapter 9, but when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled purses, persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then finally, in Hebrews chapter 10, that whole chapter lays out the the clear explanation that while it was necessary under the old law for animals to be slaughtered day after day, in the morning and in the evening and on special holidays, several of them at a time, on the day of Passover, every family would do it. It's not necessary anymore. Chapter 10 explains to us that Christ offered himself the one sacrifice that we would need. Starting in verse 11, it says that every priest stands daily at his surface offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. For his feet. And then skip down to, to 19 through 21. And these, these three verses I want us to consider as we prepare to take. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In verse 19, it says that Jesus came offering his own blood. Jesus was the sacrifice brought on that day. But in verse 20, he makes a connection that I don't know I ever would have made myself where he says that the veil, that curtain, that thing that separated God's presence, God's mercy seat from the common man, that veil was his flesh that was torn. 
And you think of what occurred, we're told in the Gospels, that as he died on that cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two as his body was broken. And then in verse 21, not only is he the offering, not only is he the veil, but he's the priest doing the offering. He's a great priest, the high priest over the house of God. The limitations of a human high priest under the law of Moses were obvious. They had need of atonement for themselves. They were limited by their own lifespan. They would always require a replacement. And it was necessary for them to keep doing what they did day after day. Because while it was enough to offer forgiveness to the people of the Old Testament, and we must not forget that, God promised that if they would observe these rituals, he would forgive them. But it wasn't going to be truly perfect. It wasn't going to be enough for all mankind. Jesus came and offered himself as that perfect, sinless sacrifice. And the promise that was made to the whole people of Israel in Exodus 19 is the same promise made to us. And First Peter First Peter provides a beautiful illustration of that, where he says that we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter's putting those pieces together for us. And this offer was made available because our high priest entered the most holy place and offered his own blood. So as we eat the supper this morning, elements that represent Christ's body and his blood, let's consider our great high priest. And if you want to think about him as the man who brought the sacrifice into that most holy place and sprinkled the blood where it ought to be and presented himself and made atonement for the people, think of him as the same man who is willing to stand between the living and the dead and put himself between the wrath of God and us as sinful people, who has made atonement for us. And let's remind ourselves, we do not come to him today as a group of sinful people. We were, but we are no longer. Because if we keep thinking of ourselves as I'm still in my sins, we are devaluing the sacrifice that Christ said was enough once for all, for all time delivered. And we come every week and we remind ourselves that we are not worthy of the gift. We didn't earn it, but it's been given. We are cleansed. We can be in his presence now. God would not allow sinful people to approach him in his most holy place. But he allows us. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's consider these things as we partake.